So, for 17 sermons now, I have been preaching through a section of our Bible known as the post-exilic section. It's an era of history covering an era known as the post-exile. This era of history is all about God, as all eras of human history incidentally are, but we could summarize the era of the post-exile as being more specifically than just being about God, but being about God's faithfulness. And hence, I have titled this sermon series, Faithful to Fulfill, a study of God's revealed revelation of himself in the post-exilic era. And so, would you open your Bibles to where we left off last week, namely the book of Ezra. We left off in chapter 7, we wrapped chapter 6, and I started uh, picking apart some of the opening verses of chapter 7, and we're going to come right back to that and just pick up and do some review. Before we jump into this seventh chapter of the book of Ezra, it is always important to work out some preliminaries that I might provide context before we get into our study. So you'll see the first point on your outline this morning is just that, preliminaries. It's important to always have uh, preliminary things covered so that as you're getting into the text, you're aware of context. Context is everything. Context is both theological and textual. By theological, I, I need to give you the context that when I'm talking about God this morning, I'm not talking about any old God. I'm not talking about God generically. I'm talking specifically about the God who is. There is a God that humans create. In fact, we have created hundreds of thousands of gods. If you look in any uh, dictionary of world religions, you can meet many gods that humans have created. There's gods we create, and then there is the one creator God. So by way of theological context, as we're getting into things this morning, I need to make clear up front the theological context that the God I'm talking about is the God who is, the creator God. The God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in three persons. The Father who sent His Son, who is the historical Jesus of Nazareth, who, who died on a cross for our sins, who rose from the dead showing that the check of His payment did not bounce. The Venmo or the wire transaction went through. He rose from the dead, He ascended into heaven, and He has sent His Spirit to give birth to His church, which we are a part of today. That is the theological context. We are God's people worshiping the God who is. I haven't come to proclaim a generic God today. I've come to proclaim a specific one, the true and living God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. That's theological context. Here's textual context. We're in this era known as the post-exile, as I said. In this section of your Bible, there are six books. You have six books that cover the era of post-exile. Three of those books are historical narratives in terms of genre. So they're, they're narratives when you're reading them, and those narratives give you details about what is happening in human history. So there's six post-exile books. Three of them are historical narratives. And then the other three, the other three are prophetic texts. So the historical texts are giving you a view of what's happening in the earth. And then the other three texts, the prophetic texts, are giving you a view from the heavens, if you will, of God's vantage point of what is going on in the earth. Now, to be sure, uh, prophecy texts and historical texts overlap. Uh, prophetic texts talk about what's going on in the earth as much as giving a heavenly uh, perspective and vice versa. But prophecy typically emphasizes more from God's vantage point 
and historical narratives are more descriptions of what is happening in terms of Earth and history. So, again, there's, there's six books, three historical and three that are prophetic. If you had, had the table of contents in your Bible open, uh, and I just took a screenshot of a table of contents of the Old Testament here, you could circle these texts. You got Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Those are the historical narratives, okay? And then you got Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Those are those prophetic texts. So if you look in the table of contents or the picture up here, you'll notice, and this is important for you to know, that the organization of these books in, inside of our contemporary English Bibles, though we have all the same books that Jesus had when he was teaching the Bible, we have all the same books that the people of Israel had in the days of old, and even today, our so-called Old Testament is identical to the Hebrew Bible today, the ordering of those books isn't exactly chronological. Uh, so you can then, you need to understand the context when you're jumping into these books, they're not necessarily moving in chronological order. So you have to know where you're at in terms of history when you're jumping into your Bible so you know what's going on. This would be true of any culture. If you're talking about America in the 21st century or the 1800s, you need to know what's going on so you can make sense of things. Now, in terms of the history of God's people, you need not only to have the books and where they fit, you need to have some themes in mind as you're reading the storyline. The storyline of the Hebrew Bible begins with the Creator God. The God creates the world. And with His creation, there's this expectation that they would walk in His love and walk in His will and, and live for Him. He's the giver of life. Creation, sadly, rebels against God. And so the giver of life takes life back, albeit because he is gracious and merciful. He doesn't take it back right away. But the creation enters into a state of decay and dysfunction. And we ourselves, which we feel in our bodies, we're in a, a process of dying. Ten out of ten people die. God creates. He has this expectation of love and obedience. We rebel, and so that becomes a mess. But God is a God of promise, and He promises to restore the mess that we have made, to clean it up Himself. This storyline continues in, a, in a, a following chapter that's about election of patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who become the people of Israel. The people of Israel are, are uh, going to be a special people in a special place. And in that special place, those special people are going to be God's priesthood who will mediate to the fallen creation this promise that he has to restore us and renew us. As you move in the storyline, you see the people of promise end up in slavery in Egypt. And so God comes as a great a liberationist, abol abolitionist to rescue them in the Exodus. And there you see the providential hand of God as he takes from the fallen creation, those that he has called, he consecrates them and sets them apart in the exodus in the wilderness, and he brings them to the place of promise. There in that place of promise, he establishes them. They're consecrated in the wilderness, they move to conquest in the new land. And in this new land, he starts making them into this priesthood. There is a line in, among the 12 tribes that will serve as priests among the priesthood of the nation. The, the, the tabernacle that God brought to them in the Exodus, this portable worship center, becomes a permanent temple in the land. The temple is this thing that is mediating to the fallen and dying creation. 
the life-giving and loving creator to them. And so you have a temple, and you have a people, and you have a priesthood in a specific place that is crying out to fallen creation, come, come be forgiven, come be restored with the God that you have rebelled against, the God who loves you, the God who has a providential plan to rescue us all. The people in the land do not exactly establish this place. This moves them then into an exile where God, in His love, as any parent would, He disciplines them. And so they move into a time of exile. However, because God has promised that that people will be in that place, and that place and people will bring this salvific prosperity to the world, that, that God will save a people for Himself through the nations, God will not leave His people in exile. And so God in His providence brings an emergence. The people return. He gives prophecy of this day. And so you, you see the establishment of the place turns into the exile of the people, but then God, faithful to fulfill, reemerges them in fulfillment of prophecy. The exile is a big deal. I said there are six books, six post-exilic books. If you want to understand post-exile, you have to understand exile. So you need this storyline. This is so significant in terms of your table of contents in your Bible because you have all these prophetic books in your, in your Bibles from Isaiah down to Malachi, and you've got to know how they fit. Broadly speaking, we categorize the prophets like this. Pre-exile, during the exile, and post-exile. So you have pre-exile, exilic, and post-exilic. If, you, if, if, you if, if you've never heard this before, just screenshot it, commit it to memory, or, or put it in your Bible somewhere so you know how these are fitting together. When you're reading the prophets in the left column, they're speaking before the exile. They're speaking to the establishment of the place as the exile is about to happen, warning the people, turn from your sin, God loves you. Stop doing it your way. This, this, this is not the way to go. Come to Him. He loves you. If we don't turn, exile is going to come to us. So the pre-exilic uh, pre prophets are giving prophecy of that. You see here on the, in, the, in that line, Jeremiah, who wrote the book of Jeremiah and also the book of Lamentations, he overlaps into that exile. Daniel as well will overlap into that exile. And, and so you have that transition. And they look forward during the exile of the day when God is going to come and bring us back. And it will be in spite of ourselves because He's a loving God. And even when we reject Him, even when we're faithless, He is faithful. What an, what an amazing God. Look how good He is to us. So this storyline of the Bible isn't just history for you to know about things in the past. This history is telling you about the God you worship. So that in your own life, where you go through these rhythms of being in bondage to slavery and sin, like they were before the Exodus, you can run to a God who will liberate you from bondage and sin. You can, you can trust and follow after a God who will establish you in place. You can know that even when you're in discipline and He's exiled you and you're experiencing the cold because you were wandering and in love, He let you experience the cold and the sting of sin so as to draw you back, that you would re-emerge. And then this story isn't just revealing history, it's revealing God, but most uniquely, the revelation of God in Christ, where God Himself, God the Son, steps into the history, in the flesh. 
Which brings us to this very sweet point of Emmanuel, God who is with us in the presence of Jesus, the Messiah who comes to fulfill all these promises. Again, that's the, this is the textual context that we're getting into, and it's also giving us the theological context, not just any old God, but the true and living God who's Father, Son, and Spirit, and the Son who became the historical Jesus in order to die in our place, to live the life that we could not live, to pay a debt that He did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. This history is all pointing to Jesus. The prophets in the pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic are all talking about not only God bringing the people back to the land, but God bringing to the land a Messiah, a Messiah for His people Israel, a Savior for the people of the nations, and those narratives are moving into that. And so you have the king, the great king David. You have the patriarch, Abram. God promises to Abram, the people will be in the place and bring this spiritual prosperity. God promises to David that he will be one of your seed. He'll be one of your descendants. And so the genealogies of the scripture and the narratives of the scripture are so important as we're sitting on the edge of our seats. When will the Messiah come? Biblical scholars Wilkinson and Boa observe the Messiah, the Christ in Ezra. Let me quote to you. Ezra reveals God's continued fulfillment of his promise to keep David's descendants alive. Zerubbabel himself is a part of the Messianic line as the grandson of Jeconiah. There is a positive note of hope in Ezra because the remnant has returned to the land of promise. And in this land, the messianic promises will be fulfilled because they are connected with the places of Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Zion. Christ will be born in Bethlehem, not Babylonia. The, prof the book of Ezra as a whole typifies Christ's work of forgiveness and restoration. So, so this is giving us context to see right, the God who is the God who's revealed in Christ, the God who's revealing himself in this historic uh, storyline. And we're at that point that I just sh showed you, emergence and prophecy. That's where we're at. The prophets saw this day. If you missed last week's sermon, you could go back and listen online. I showed you prophecies of Jeremiah and Daniel that predicted exactly this day. In fact, I showed you this, and I'll show you again because it's, it's worth you seeing. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45, the prophet of Isaiah, uh, over a hundred years before the time of this history, actually by name speaks of the Persian ruler, Cyrus, that God will raise up as his shepherd, his anointed, for sake of his promises to his people, that they will come back and build the city and the exiles will go free. This is absolutely incredible prophecy. God is showing, look, I'm in control. For the skeptics who are like, oh yeah, I don't believe, whatever. Okay, I'll just name his name a hundred plus years before he, he, he's even come into existence. And so in terms of naming names and in terms of history, these are the figures that we're reading about. We're reading about Cyrus, who becomes the king of Persia. Cyrus, who conquers Babylon. Babylon, who is the great oppressor of the people of God that God used in his discipline as a, as a part of that era of exile of the people. And now, now there's a new king in town, and he, he throws down against Babylon, Cyrus does, and he takes things over, and Cyrus allows the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem. You see the date up there, 538 BC. The people uh, go back to the land, some of them, 
And I'll say more about that in a moment. And they began rebuilding the temple that I was talking about, that, that the priesthood was, was to have the living God bringing life to a dying earth. The temple building, however, is stopped, you see, on the historic timeline behind, behind me, in front of you, 535 to 520. This is the sad part of the story. God has rescued them and brought them back to the land to restore and rebuild his temple that his light might shine in the darkness. And instead of rebuilding his temple, we see inside of the prophetic texts that they start running to Ikea and Home Depot and Amazon Prime, and they just start hooking their stuff up. You know, they're, they're hooking their whips up and they're spending their money on their stuff and they're not putting energy into building the temple of God. Say, after all you've been through, that's what you do? Well, let's slow our road because we do it too. God rescues us from stuff all the time. And we end up back, we end up back in the pig pen, rolling around in sin when we know better, when he's shown us his love and he's shown us his light. So as we study this history, we have to be careful not to get all uppity, looking at those people who don't understand because we must look in the mirror and see that we too are prone to wander. Darius becomes the king of Persia, 522-486. Xerxes becomes the king of Persia. Artaxerxes steps on scene, and eventually the temple is completed. Three narrative books, three prophetic books, they're overlapping. The prophets come and go, you guys got to get back to work. God brought you here to do something. Get back to work. So uh, that was, in fact, the title of the sermon that I offered in that section. It was Back to Work. And then the sermon uh, after that, and just before this one I'm offering today, was Back to Church. you got to get back to worship, man. you got to get back to work, man. What you, we, I didn't bring you to this land so that you can live some suburban, utopian dream and just be all about you. I've, I've rescued you to be a praise for my name. And so as he calls them back to work, as he calls them back to church, we see this coming alive. It happens. They built a temple. And all of this is confirmed by archaeology as well. In previous sermons, I've shared with you uh, through the sands of time our archaeological evidence for Cyrus. This, this piece here that's in front of you is in the British Museum. Every time I'm in London, I go down there and stare at this thing. It's absolutely tremendous. Archaeologists have also unearthed bowls of Darius and Artaxerxes. This isn't once upon a time many moons ago. We're not talking about Care Bears and Smurfs and unicorns. We're talking about real history here. This really happened. God really did this. So the post-exile, they're, they're coming back, and they come back in three broad waves, as I've been teaching you. The first wave is with Zerubbabel in 536. The second wave is with Ezra in 448. And the third wave, which we're going to get to when we study Nehemiah, because we've, we've got three historical books to cover, and we're just in Ezra, so we've got to cover Nehemiah and also Esther. We're, we're going to see that third wave coming in. I say all of this, and teaching you uh, the Bible is a great honor in, in my life. It's a great privilege to stand before God's people and teach the Bible. And I say all of this, however, with a heavy heart, because I know across this nation on Sunday morning, there's many people in pulpits who just aren't teaching the Bible. And so you're never learning this stuff. You don't learn this history. And you get five steps to being a better you, or you get a whole bunch of law and no gospel. Uh, a, a preacher's just going to beat you up for not praying enough, not giving enough, not doing whatever enough, right? Not believing enough, not receiving enough. Not, and, and it's just, it's all a big fat farce. It's false religion. 
As God's people, we have come to hear God's word. We've come to learn God's word. And we need to know him and we need to know this history because he's chosen to reveal himself through his word and through this history. So here's the history in front of us. Ezra, chapter 7, verse 1. Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra. Okay, so what's the after these things? I've given you the historical context. You, you saw the slide with the dates and what have you. After what things? After the finishing of the temple. After the dedication ceremonies that we studied last week. Right? Also recall last week, uh, we met this figure, Artaxerxes. I shared it with you that Artaxerxes is not a name, it's a title. It's a throne for various Persian rulers in the first Persian Empire. Because, it, 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 because uh, they all use the name Artaxerxes, just like the Caesars all use Caesars, on a historical note, it has, it has created some debate among scholars in terms of which Artaxerxes this is. Uh, I shared with you last week that I, I hold the view that this, this Artie, this Artie is Longamanus, Artaxerxes I, who is the son of Xerxes, the famous ruler of Ashuerus, who we will meet in our study in the book of Esther, which I hope to get into after Easter, by the way. So if you want to start reading the book of Esther, you know, do that now. So after we get through Holy Week and what have you, we're going to pick up with Esther, because as we finish the seventh chapter of Ezra, this is where Esther fits. Again, these books aren't chronological, they overlap. And so it's good to learn this history. And I thank God that we have a church like this that doesn't shy away from actually teaching the Bible. Imagine that, a church teaching the Bible. Imagine that. What, a, what an idea. Te just teach the Bible. I had a pastor one time. I've been pastoring for 24, 25 years now. And, uh, you know, uh, a pastor came to me. He goes, where do you get your ideas for your sermons? You know, like, where do you get, you know, I'm just, I'm always wrestling with, like, what I'm going to talk about next. And I'm like, I'm like, brother, like, there's 66 books in here. Just knock yourself out teaching them. So teach chapter 1 of Genesis, and next week teach chapter 2. You could keep yourself busy for a long time. It just, it's all there for you. Just teach the Word of God as it was given to us, as it was entrusted to us. Okay, so God in, in history, uh, here we are with this message, back to work, back to church. And I've titled this message, Back to Reality, because now in Ezra 7.1 it says, now after these things. Now it's real. The temple's popping off. We did the dedication. We had the barbecue. We, you know, like, it, like now it's, it's happening. So today's message is called Back to Reality. And yes, in case you're wondering, I, I, I do have the 1980s R&B Soul to Souls song playing in my head when I say it. Back to life, back to reality. And now some of you got it going too. So the thing about that song, though, is it's very redundant. Back to life, back to reality. It is just, it keeps saying the same thing over and over and over. And I thought that was particularly fitting as we get into the seventh chapter and they're back to reality. There's some redundancy in these opening verses. A lot like soul to soul. Uh, God bless them. That was like Milli Vanilli era too. Anyway, so verse one, two, three, four. What's the repetition there? Son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of. It's like soul to soul wrote this. <laughs> uh, l l let's read it, though. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up from Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Esariah, the son of Hilkah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merathuot, 
the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abish Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Now, I, I'm emphasizing in my enunciation the son of because it, it's actually important. Unlike Soul to Soul song. Like, what was that about? I don't know. That's not about anything. The repetition here is actually about something. It's about genealogy. So again, the God who's revealing himself to the creation is a God who steps into history with us. Real people in real life with a real God and real faith. And when you're going to step into history, genealogies matter. Because God made certain promises to certain people about certain things of how he's going to solve this Big old mess that we have made. So we move from the preliminaries on your outline to the pedigree. Genealogies are spiritual pedigrees. We saw the three waves. Recall the first wave on that map was Zerubbabel. Recall the, the quote I gave you from, from, uh, about Christ in Ezra. What's the significance of Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel's of the Messianic line. So, so God has brought the people back to the place, he's put the temple there, and he's brought back the messianic line there through Zerubbabel. And now, who's, who's this dude, Ezra? What line is he from? The son of who? What's the last? The son of who? Aaron. Oh, snap. You have the messianic line in town, and you have the Aaronic line in town. Who's, who's Aaron? Who's Aaron? Aaron is of the priestly line. Aaron is the first of the, the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood that God raised up in the days of Moses. In fact, he's Moses' big brother. He's got like three years on him. Moses' big brother, he plays a key role in the Exodus. Uh, he, he's, he doesn't go through the history unstained. He's a man who's got flaws, again, reminding us that even the priesthood that God is giving to the earth to restore it is flawed, but one day there's going to come a priest who will be perfect. But this is the priesthood that was given in that dispensation. And Aaron and, and his line are ordained by God to serve as priests, not only for the people of Israel, but for the nations to come and to be reconciled to God through that temple. Here's a picture of the temple. The temple restored under Ezra. The temple, again, as I said, it, 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 it's revealing the light and the love of heaven into the earth. It, the, the temple is very much like a porthole where the heavens and the earth are coming together and the presence of God is there in the temple being mediated through a priesthood. The wages of our sin is death, and so the priests minister sacrifices, reminding us that we deserve death, giving us pictures of something innocent dying in the place of something guilty, which all are pointing to the Christ who will come and give his life for us. The sacrifices point to Christ. The priests point to Christ. Christ is not only the Lamb of God, but he is also the priest of God, and further, he is the temple of God. All of it is pointing to him. Now the temple has come. From chapter 6 to chapter 7, some 60 years had passed in terms of our, our calculations of the history here. So they went back to work, they went back to church, and now they're back to reality. What are they going to do with this opportunity? Verse 6, Ezra went up from Babylon... He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given him. He's a skilled scribe, the text tells us. The word for scribe is the word sofer. Sofer is a term that gets used in, uh, in Hebrew scripture in the ancient world for educated people, for government employees, for accountants, and for textual copyists. 
He is said to be a sofer who is mahir. A mahir is a word that we get translated in our English Bible here as skilled. It is a word that also means quick or swift. He's, he's quick at it. You know, you meet someone like that, they're just quick. They're quick at it. They can, they can do it fast. They're good at it. He's mahir. This word mahir occurs in three other passages in the Hebrew Bible. Psalm 45.1, if you're taking notes, where we read again of a skillful scribe, a mahir sofer. Proverbs 22.29, if you're taking notes, which speaks of a skilled employee who works in the presence of kings. And lastly, in Isaiah 16.5, which ties the mahir to righteousness. And so taken together, the sofer mahir is someone who has a reputation for righteousness, for justice, who works in the presence of royalty. They are educated. They are godly. They have a position of power. The scribes are scholars. They're university professors. They're intellectuals. They're, they, are, they are known uh, not only for their, their intellectual wisdom, but also for their involvement in government and also for their knowledge of Scripture. Verse 6 says he is skilled not just in the intellect, but he's skilled specifically in Moses. This would be a way of just, you know, you know uh, of saying the Torah, the, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. So verse 10 mentions Ezra's scholarship in the Holy Bible. This tells us a lot about Ezra, and it tells us a lot about his migration into the land. A couple of things that are worth mentioning in terms of what it tells us. First, it tells us that Ezra had made it in Persia. So Babylon, boom, right? Persia comes in, punks Babylon. Persia's popping off. You know, they got, they got the, you know, they got the bomb gyros and Persian rugs, and the culture's great, and whatever. It's less oppressive than Babylon. Ezra made it in Persia. He climbed the corporate ladder. He's got a government job. He's got a 401k. He's got a nice salary. He's got a position. He's got comfort. He's got friends. He, he, he made a nice life for himself in Persia. And yet he was willing to give it up for the mission of God. Recall that in those ways, as we discussed, most of the people didn't want to come back. I'm not trying to go back there. I don't want to go back there. For Ezra, he, he, he has never lived there. For, for those people, that, the, you know, Babylon wiped them out a long time ago. Assyria wiped out their ancestors a long time ago. Assyria, they, you just assimilate into Assyria. You just, you just make your, yourself home in Babylon. It's not that bad. If you grow up there, that's all you know. I went to Babylon High, started dating a Babylonian girl, started my family. I'm not trying to go back to, I'm not trying to go back there. If, if, if your parents immigrated here from another country or whatever, and you're just raised in America, and that's all you know, you don't even know the language of, of your parents' homeland or whatever, and then one day they start talking about, I think God's calling us to go back. I'm, I'm cool. I like America. Thank you. I will stay here. So most of them settled for the suburbs. They didn't want to suffer for rebuilding a temple in a hard city. So it tells us some things about Ezra. One, that he had made it in Persia and that he was willing to give it up for the mission of God. Second, it tells us that Ezra was a student of the word. There was a sense, again, in which this is just theory for him in terms of he's reading about places and people and things God is doing in history and he's never been there. Which, which, by the way, I'm working on another Israel trip, so, you know, stay tuned for it. And if you have the opportunity to go, it's amazing to go to the Holy Land, because then you're like, I've been reading about Galilee 
for so long, and now I'm, I'm on a boat in Galilee, you know, and it just kind of, it clicks, you know, you're like, you know, like if you, if you were reading about whatever, Manchester and Slauson or something, you're like, I, I, I can't see it, you know, because you live in Fresno or some horrible place, right? And so you don't know about the, the beautiful places around here. But then you come and visit, it's like Hollywood, it's like Hollywood. Friends who aren't from here, they come, they go, take us to Hollywood. Bro, you don't want to go to Hollywood. <laughs> It's just urine and syringes and fat Spider-Mans trying to get a dollar. You don't want to go there. Take you to Malibu or something. So Ezra, Ezra doesn't know what Hollywood's like. He, he hasn't grown up in it. In fact, chapter 7, this is the first time that he's actually mentioned in the book. The book's named after him. He's the author. But we don't meet him until the seventh chapter. He was raised in a pagan land. And he climbed the corporate ladder of Persia which means he, he learned to speak their languages. And in fact, I shared with you that the book of Ezra, he switches languages in the book. Uh, for English readers, it's nice you have it in, in English, but he switches language. He uses Persian loan words, Aramaic, he goes to the ancient Hebrew. So th this is a kid who ha had to learn all these different cultures, right? This is a kid who, like, all this stuff happened and he, he wasn't even alive. In my own, I, I likened this last week in my own PhD work. I studied a lot of church history in the early 1900s and stuff that happened before I was born in the 70s. And so it, it's, it's cool to study something and then to step into it. So he's going to actually, he studied the history and now he's going to step into the history and go, oh, okay, oh, wow, you know, I'm going, this is, that, that's the temple. I've been reading about the temple. That's the temple. You might recall that with the first wave, there were some older folks who, when they came back, they looked at the Temple Mount, and they were all grumbling and stuff. They're like, this doesn't look like Solomon's. You know, uh, Ezra doesn't know. He doesn't have anything to compare it to. He just comes walking in and, you know, like, oh, that's, that's the temple, you guys. He's trained in the Word, too, so you got to imagine everything's just clicking in his head. Like, I've been reading about this. This is, this is amazing. Verse 6, he went up from Babylon. Look at verse 6. Scribes, killing the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And then the king granted him all that he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. The text is written in a way to remind the reader that God is doing this. The exile, though bad, though sad, that was in the providence of God. That was in God's hand. This is in God's hand. You're going to see this phrase about the hand of God in 7.9, 7.14, 7.25, 7.28, not to mention four times in chapter 8, 8.18, 8.22, 8.31, twice. God's hand, God's hand. God's hand, God's hand. And yes, in case you're wondering, that made me think about Drake's song, God's Plan. Uh, now that's stuck in my head. But uh, mind you, that's not an endorsement. I think Canadian rap is horrible, but... Uh, and, and Drake isn't known for godly character. Oh, I'm, I'm, i got to stop before I get nasty emails from people. But God's plan, just like Soul to Soul, is a very catchy one. It's very catchy. And actually, the song, now that I think about it, God's plan actually captures perseverance in the face of hardship. Bad things, bad things. There's a lot of bad things, right? That they wish in and wish in on me. Bad things. Well, Ezra, as he gets back to the land, there's a lot of people wishing bad things on him. We know that the Samaritans were not happy about them rebuilding the temple. You may know from Bible history, the Samaritans were all about that Gerizim, so they weren't happy. 
They, they were coming up against them. You want, you, want to, you want to fight? You want to fight? So the Samaritans want to scrap. There's a bunch of anti-Semitism all around the land. There's demonic forces that work behind anti-Semitism. Let me tell you something. This is a dark, a dark mission that Ezra is on to go back to the land and to work for that temple now built to get back and crack in. You are going to fight demons to get that thing going. And when the devil whispers in your ear that you're not strong enough to withstand the storm, God's people need to go ahead and just tune that nonsense out because our God is the storm. The prophet Isaiah said, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Uh, mind you, that isn't a verse to be taken out of context for your job interview or the girl who doesn't like you. Uh, that is for God's people doing God's work. The people of Israel becoming the priesthood to restore the nations. God wanted Israel to know, I got you. Don't be afraid of the haters. Don't be afraid of the outside attacks. Don't be afraid of the bad things that they're wishing on you. The prophet was calling them not to focus on the outside, but to focus on the inside. You see, the problem of the heart was the heart of the problem. The problem that made this mess to begin with wasn't Babylon and Assyria. It wasn't Persia. It was the people. So Ezra, you need to go back there. I've raised you up. You know my word. And the word is what's going to change the people from inside. In our recent studies in Ezra, we've seen how God uh, uses the power of his word to stir revival. We've also seen how God uses the secular government and pagan political powers to do his work. So, so the irony of all of this is, is, is that the exile coming back was largely brought on by pagan political powers. Might I say that I believe the Lord in his common graces continues to do this today. Uh, I often you know, think of, of scenarios like the post-exile and, and see in our contemporary setting where God's people are not doing what they're supposed to do. And so they miss out on the opportunity of partnering with God. And then God, to our shame, goes and uses someone outside to accomplish his will. Theologically and practically, that reminds us that God ordains not only the ends, but he also ordains the means and everything in between. You see, while Israel was letting the temple sit unfinished, while they're running around hooking up their whips and their houses and, 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 and doing what they want to do, right? These pagan powers were actually financing and empowering the temple's rebuild. That's an indictment on the people of God. And again, we can't get all uppity and look at them like, oh, because that has happened in North America. Uh, perhaps the most glaring one in North America in terms of modern history would be the 20th century and racism in the church. As Martin Luther King Jr. lamented, Sundays are the most segregated hour in our culture. While Billy Graham was beginning his evangelistic crusades preaching to segregated audiences, the God of heaven was actually moving in our culture to confront the evil, and largely he was using outside forces to confront that evil because the church was busy being complicit in it. That said, God was also working in his church. In particular, in the pre- and the post-war era, he was working through the black church, who trailblazed nonviolence and modeled gospel love and forgiveness in the face of hate. You see, while God uses secular forces, he also is faithful to his people, and he always raises up a remnant who he starts to use to shift, and he's got them both in his hands. 
He's using stuff outside. He's using stuff inside. But to prepare the people on the inside, he brings his word. This removes us from preliminaries, pedigree, to the third point, preparations. Draw your eyes back at verse 6. We read that the hand of the Lord was on him. Verse 7, some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests and the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So the Lord was preparing a team for Ezra. He, he gets Ezra. This guy knows the word. He's going to bring the word to the people. But this guy can't do it alone. He needs people with him. Even when you feel like you're alone, you are not alone. Be reminded of the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19 who cried out to God in despair, am I the only one left? Mind you, he was sleep deprived, hungry, drained, probably suffering. Elijah was from PTSD. He had seen hand-to-hand combat with pagan forces. He had to use his own hands to stay alive. In a cave all alone, he cries out to God, am I the only one left? And what did God tell Elijah? I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. 1 Kings 19, 18. Elijah, you're not alone. Ezra, you're not alone. Dear brother, dear sister, you are not alone. In recent sermons, I've compared the building of the temple in this former dispensation to the mission of the church today, who is the temple of God and dwelt by the Spirit, as the New Testament teaches us. We are the temple. We are the temple of Christ, the temple of the Spirit. And just as God was calling this exilic community to build that, He's calling His people in this generation to build it. And like that mission in Ezra, it's going to be hard. And Delray Church, if we're going to be faithful here in Los Angeles doing it, it's going to be hard. It's going to mean we have to give up things to accomplish His mission. It's going to mean that we put His mission first and other things behind it. It's a, it's a great and honorable calling, but it is one that will not come without conflict and without sacrifice. Ezra was not alone. Delray Church, you're not alone. Faithful churches around Los Angeles are not alone. In Ezra, God was preparing a priest and a praise team for the servants to go. Speaking of going with him, mind you, let me give you some perspective here, some geography. Babylon to Jerusalem on, on a short route is, is 500 miles. Okay, so that's Inglewood to Tucson, Arizona. Who wants to walk to Tucson today, right? That's Inglewood to Lake Tahoe. That's Inglewood to Redding. I was on Google Maps trying to figure out some comparisons here. That, 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 the shortest distance that you could kind of get is 500. More than likely, though, and I'll, I'll spare you the nerdy geography here. More than likely, though, they would have had to take the 900-mile route. So that would be like Inglewood to Portland. Who wants to walk to Boulder, Colorado today? Yellowstone National Park. That sounds fun. Which brings us to the next point. We move from preparations to passage. We see this journey they have to go on. Verse 8. For he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king. For in the first of the first month, he began to go up to Babylon. And the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. Okay, so based on these time markers... We can see that it took them 119 days, or like four months, to get there. So depending on which route was taken, I'll spare you all the details, that would be five to ten miles a day. In terms of ancient travel, a lean and mean caravan could do 15 to 20, but if you've got kids and senior citizens, that's going to be really rough to do. Uh, Not to mention that this is their first time going, there's no Google Maps, and you don't want to stop and ask for directions. Not because you're the stereotypical man, okay, but because there's enemies out on the road. 
So if you're like, hey, where's Jerusalem? <laughs> oh, why do you want to go to Jerusalem? Oh, because we're Jewish? Uh, you know, they're going to they're kill you. They're going to kill you. Uh, even to this day, when you go in the land, like if you meet anti-Semitic people and you're a tourist, they're just, you know, some people are going to hate you. And you're like, hey, which way to, you know, they're going to, oh, it's that way. But really, it's that way. You know, it's just, that, that, you, you can't stop and ask for directions. That's cool, though. You don't need directions. You have something better. God's hand. God's hand. God's hand. God's hand. Verse 9. For the first month he began to go up from Babylon. On the first of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of God was upon him. You see that? It was God's hand. It was God's hand. Like the secular Canadian poet Drake, right? It's God's hand. It's God's plan. God is the one who is going to do his plan. Verse 10, For Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. It, it's flowing from Ezra's heart. You see that? His, his passage to the temple wouldn't be a matter of him forcing himself to do it. It's what he wanted to do in his heart. His heart was set. That is a sweet place, by the way, to be with the Lord, where your service and your worship is just coming from your heart. That is a sweet place to be, even in relationships or even, even in your job. You know, when you get to the place where you don't like your job and you just kind of got to go through the motions and force yourself and be fake or whatever. It's, it's just nice to love what you do and love who you're with and, and just from your heart to do it. Jesus said, he who loves me obeys me. Obedience to God should flow from our love of God. Further, Jesus described and modeled joyful obedience in his life as our substitutionary sacrifice, living the life that we haven't lived. Paul described love in Romans 13.10 as the fulfillment of the law. Flowing from the heart, God's hand, God's hand has touched him. A child of God, touched by God's hand, receives a love from the Father that, that, that compels them from the heart. I think of the young rich ruler. You remember who countered Jesus? He was a big baller. He had lots of possessions. And Jesus was like, hey, give it all up and follow me. He goes, I can't do that. I can't do that. Why? Because he was ensnared and enslaved to his possessions and his status. He was not free. Ezra walked away from his Persian status. Ezra gave up his, 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 his Persian passport and walked that long walk all the way back and he didn't do it begrudgingly, it came from his heart. The young rich ruler couldn't, he was not free. He was not willing to let go of everything. Ezra was like the young rich ruler. He was that so fair, but he walked away from it all. When Jesus had his encounters with the young rich ruler and similar ones, holding on to their stuff, holding on to their dreams, holding on to their idols, Jesus would say things just like this, and, and the disciples, they would scratch their heads. Let me put it in front of you. They would scratch their heads, the disciples would, and they, and they would say, then, then who could be saved? Who's going to be saved? No one's going to walk away from their stuff. Who, who's going who's to be saved? And what does Jesus say in front of you? Luke 18, 27, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Only God holds the key to the heart. The prophet Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can understand it? God alone, God alone, by supernatural transformation, can change the heart. Jesus described this in John 3 as being born again, receiving a new heart that comes by the Spirit of God who moves through the Word of God to grab us. 
John 17, 17, Jesus cried out to the Father, Father, sanctify them by your truth because your word is the truth. The Spirit moves through the word to the heart and then the heart compels us and that's the sweet place to be where your service and your worship and your relationships and your life in God are just flowing from the heart. Ezra, it says that, that his heart was locked on the word of God. He wanted to study it, he wanted to practice it, and he wanted to teach it. He wanted to know it, he wanted to obey it, and he wanted to share it. There are many people today who know the Bible. They know the commands. They, they know of the God of the Bible. But there isn't that heart in it. There isn't that obedience in it. There isn't that sharing. Sharing brings us to the next point. We move from passage to proclamation. Now, by sharing, I'm not getting at gospel proclamation here, but rather the proclamation of the pagan government in the text, which is a reminder that as gospel heralds, as people who've been called to share the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, that, that nomenclature of gospel and herald and ambassador, that's all government political language in the day, which reminds us that when we share the gospel, we're actually doing the king's work. We're doing the king's work. We are people who are under order of the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's given us a work to do. And when we proclaim him, we're representing his kingdom, his embassy. Back to the text, Ezra 7, 11. This is a copy of the decree from King Xerxes given to Ezra, the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and the statutes of Israel. Artaxerxes, King of kings, Ezra to the priest, the scribe of the law, of the God of heaven, perfect peace. Now, the phrase God of heaven here is unique because it's the pagan government talking about Ezra's God. Can you, can you imagine Gavin Newsom writing me a letter talking about the God of heaven? Right? Can you imagine that? Uh, he had a billboard where he quoted the Bible out of context. But I mean, like, like, a, like this is crazy. The pagan government is talking about the God of heaven. In fact, it's mentioned four times in the letter in 712, 721, and 723, two times. And the irony, again, is that there's a whole bunch of God's people who, who are kicking it in Persia and don't want to go back because they'd rather live for their own stuff than they would his mission. And now, verse 13, I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. So again, it's a bit of an indictment here because the letter from the pagan government is acknowledging that there's people who didn't want to go with them. You see, see, again, missing out on a moment, right? Because you, you've been kicking it in Persia too long and you've just settled into the culture. Anyway, so the pagan king isn't forcing the people to go. He's like, hey, if you want to go, you could go. I'm not, I'm not tripping. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, those Babylonians, they oppressed you, whatever. We're, we're, we are a benevolent, tyrannical force. <laughs> we'll, we'll let you do what you want. So let's move quickly. Verse 14. For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, to bring the silver and the gold, and the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, who is dwelling in Jerusalem, with all the silver and the gold that you find in the whole province of Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people and the priests, who offer willingly to the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem, with this money, you will diligently buy bulls, rams, lambs, grain offerings, drink offerings, and offer them on the altar to the house of your God, which is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers, do for the rest, silver, gold, do according to the will of your God. God's plan. God's plan. In an age of hyper-separation of church and state, people would go nuts over this, right? 
if Gavin Newsom was writing me letters like this, you know, saying, uh, California is going to just, we're, we're, we're going to send you guys some money. We want to help you guys out. The ACLU would lose its mind. The Americans United for the Separation of Church and State would lose its mind. I mean, can you imagine? This, this, but it's happening in human history. And I've shown you the archaeological evidence in previous uh, installments of this series. We, we have artifacts uh, corroborating this happening. Verse 19, all the utensils given to you for the service of the house of your God deliver in full for Jerusalem. So they were colonizers, the Babylonians. They came in, they wiped them out, and they took all their stuff, right? And, and then now Persia takes them over, and Persia's like, whatever, you can have your stuff back. It's like the opening scene in Black Panther where, uh, you know, dude has to go in and get the, get the Wakanda stuff, get the vibranium or whatever. It's like, if, if the government was just like, have your vibranium. Go back to Wakanda. Here's your vibranium. Do stuff, whatever, you know, for your gods. Verse 20, the rest of the needs of your house of your God which you have on occasion to provide, provide for the royal treasury. I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the province beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest and the scribe of the law, the God of heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently. Even up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of weed, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, salt that's needed. The pagan government is funding the rebuilding of the temple of the holy God of heaven. Last week I showed you this verse. It's, it's one to write down if you didn't last week. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Gavin Newsom, uh, 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 Biden, uh, previous presidents, the next ones to come, the, the tyrants of the world, Putin, whoever. No, no one is outside of his providence. Look at verse 23. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal for the house of the God of heaven so that there will not be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. Now that's an interesting line there. The pagan guy says, I don't want to upset your God. He has a reputation of punishing people. So... I'm offering myself to your God. I don't want his wrath on my back. Earlier in, in Ezra, in chapter 6, we saw this with, the, with, with the, one of the former kings, King Cyrus, when he issued the decree for them to go rebuild the temple. In that, you may recall, that he actually said in that decree, in Ezra 6, you can read it, uh, he actually said, and please pray for me. Please pray for me. You've got pagan kings asking for prayers. And then in chapter 7, the next king is seeking favor. I mean, th th again, this is an overlap of church and state, but it's also, it's, also not, you know, it's also not entirely sincere on the part of the king. He lives in a syncretistic culture with lots of gods, and so a part of the political hegemony is just by taking on everyone's gods. And so, you know, you take on these guys' god and these guys' gods, and you sort of increase your chances of, you know, keeping all the gods happy because it was a polytheistic culture. It reminds us of the Apostle Paul when he was on Mars Hill in the book of Acts and he saw all the gods and he was burdened by it. And then he saw an idol, a statue to the what? The unknown God. Just in case we missed one, we'll make an idol to the unknown one. And then Paul looks at all the idols and he goes, yeah, I'm going to talk to you about the unknown one. Um, and I'm going to tell you who he really is. There is one God. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. He's revealed in the Son. Verse 24, we want to inform you. That is not allowed to impose tax, tribute, or toll on any of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers. You're giving them nonprofit status? Wow. 
You, Ezra, verse 25, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges, that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even those who know the laws of your Lord, that you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or imprisonment. I mean, that, that, this, is, this is absolutely incredible. You, you have pagan powers in the hands of God. Now, pagan powers and politicians, we know it still goes on in our day. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. Politicians in our culture do this all the time to Christians and churches. They'll act like they're a Christian to get the Christian vote. They particularly play on Christians who are uncomfortable and fearful, who are worried about losing certain privileges and whatnot, and then they'll jump in bed with a political enemy just to, you know, just to get a pass to do certain things, and they'll give them certain passes on certain sins or whatever if it fits what they want. The Scriptures tell us for a reason, Psalm 146.3, do not put your trust in princes. And might I add prime ministers, premiers, presidents, and mortals in whom there is no help. Happy are those who help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Ezra has his hope in the Lord. Isaiah 40, 31, we read this, that those who hope in the Lord will gain strength. And it is no wonder then that we see Ezra say, thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God. Which brings us to the final point of praise. I shared with you earlier in our study about how the first wave of seniors came and they were all bummed. This temple's not as good as Solomon. I pastorally applied that in a previous sermon about how we can, in our own lives, we can look back on maybe how God moved in the past in our lives, and then we can miss Him moving in the present because we're stuck comparing. You know, like, oh, when I first got saved, everything was like magical, and now it's, you know, or, you know, God used to do this, and like now, or I was in this church, and they used to do this, and then now you can be so caught looking at the past that you're missing the present, yet alone, let alone having a hope in the future. Looking back can rob us of our joy as we compare. In these closing verses, we see Ezra doesn't have that problem. Ezra is excited. He isn't letting grumbling get to him. Recall there is this major gap of 60 years from, from chapter 6 to chapter 7. Recall that Ezra hasn't seen Solomon's temple. This is, the, this is the only temple that he knew. And he's looking at this humble temple, a bit smaller than Solomon's, less of a dedication party, less, less barbecue, less, less all that. But it, it doesn't matter because you're in the will of God. Oh, the joy to be in the will of God. Oh, the joy to have Him hold your heart and just be walking in love and obedience where you're not white-knuckling it and making yourself do it. Before these verses, I want to show you something. Here we have Ezra's first time speaking in the first person. As well, here in verse 27, he switches to Hebrew. Look at the text. Blessed be the God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. And I gathered the leading men in Israel. Let's do this. Go with me. All of his life, Ezra had studied the word. All of his life, he, he had heard of the land. All of his life, he had heard that they had a special calling that went back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they were going to be this priesthood to call the nations of the world to be reconciled to God. 
And now, now he reads in verse 25 about teaching the Torah. Look at verse 25. Teaching the Torah to those who are ignorant of it. That's the prophecy that the nations, the Gentiles would come. Those who don't know the law are going to come. God is stirring revival to the people in spite of the people, which reminds us that we worship a gracious God. And so to any and all listening, and if you've tuned out, tune back in, because you need to hear this, no matter where you're at in your life, all of, us, all of us come in the door with some sin, and all of us come in the door with a prophetic call to repent and turn of it. No matter where you are or how far you've gone into the darkness, there is a way out. And the way out will be had through repentance and faith and coming to Him. The way out will come through His mediation. And thank God that it's not a temple and a, and a priesthood with its own problems. We have Jesus, our temple, our priest, and our sacrifice. Earlier, the king was worried about the wrath of God. You know what? We don't have to worry about the wrath of God because the wrath of God was satisfied in the Son. Before I end this sermon, we're going to pick up in Ezra in the next installment. So before I end Ezra or pause Ezra, I would be remiss not to mention, I would be remiss not to mention that, the, the, that what Ezra was going through in this, like, we've got to rebuild the temple. We've got to get this crack in. I would be remiss not to mention to us in the 21st century. You know this is still going on today, right? You know Ezra's people. You know the Jewish community today are like the first wave. The temple is in ruins. 70 AD, the Roman Empire knocked over the, the temple. Okay, so this temple that they built, Herod comes in, he hooks it up, throws some bling on it. 70 AD, the Roman Empire comes and knocks it over. It's in ruins. Uh, Jewish people today are longing to have that temple rebuilt. Here's the problem. Let me show you a little picture here. Where the temple stood through, uh, through Islamic domination in history, they took over that land and they put a, a, a Muslim site there, the Dome of the Rock. And you can, you can feel the tension there. Uh, here, here I am at the, at the Western Wall. The Western Wall right here. This would be the Temple Mount where, where it once stood. And you can see there's kind of a problem with rebuilding the temple because... One of Islam's most holiest of sites is where the temple used to be. Do you think they'll let us build it? Yeah, probably not without World War III breaking out. There you can see the dome in the background. Uh, you go up here in the territory that is controlled by Muslims. You will hear chants for the death of the Jews. You'll see Jewish people down here at the wall, praying for the wall, praying for the rebuilding of their temple. You'll, you'll see conflict break out there all the time. One time I stayed in a little flat that was right by the wall. Fireworks popping off and all that. I'd be remiss not to tell you about it if you don't know. The Temple Institute in Jerusalem, it's just right across from the Western Wall in the old city Jerusalem. They have a gold menorah on, on display right here. The Western Wall is over here. They have the gold menorah on display. They, they have the calculations for the temple to be rebuilt. They have models of it and everything. They have the priestly uniforms as spelled out in the Law of Moses, built. They have the instruments for sacrifice, built. They have the, the, the genetic line of the sacrifices of the animals, the genetic pedigree for them already established for the heifers, the bulls, the specific calculations. They are ready to build the temple. I'd be remiss not to say that uh, just as uh, Ezra's temple didn't match the dimensions of Solomon's temple, 
the temple in the days of Herod also didn't match the dimensions of the temple that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 40, verses, chapter 40 through 48. You see, the prophet Ezekiel saw a vision of a temple that the earth hasn't seen yet. The prophet Daniel talked about this temple. Guess what? Jesus talked about this temple. If you were here for the public reading of Scripture when we began church today, we had a sample from the Olivet Discourse where Jesus talked about a temple that wasn't the temple of his day. It was a future temple. Speaking of Daniel and Jesus and Ezra and prophecy, there's not time to unpack it. But in Daniel chapter 9, there is a prophecy of 70 weeks of years in the Jewish calendar, which is a prophetic countdown to the coming of the Messiah. The oracle in Daniel 9 said the clock, the countdown clock would start ticking, get this, with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which is what we're studying. That's what happened with King Artaxerxes of Persia in 444 B.C. When you click the clicker at 444 B.C. and Artaxerxes, what we've been studying, when you click that countdown, that prophetic countdown from Daniel chapter 9, guess what happens on the exact day? Palm Sunday, which is next Sunday. Jesus rides into town in front of the temple exactly to the prophetic dimensions that have been given. And Jesus preached at that temple and said, this temple will be toppled in a generation, and a temple will come in the future. There will be abomination of desolation. There will be wars and rumors of wars. You will have to flee from the city and get to the hills. Oh, so much could be said about Antichrist and end times, but this sermon needs to end. And here's what you need to hear, is we don't fear the last days. First Thessalonians tells the church that we wait for the Son from heaven who was raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath that is to come. First Thessalonians 5 tells us about the times and the epochs, brethren. You have no need for anything to be written to you because God has not destined you for wrath. Why? Because Jesus took the wrath for us. And we read in Thessalonians that we are not to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep, that's a euphemism for death, that we will not grieve like those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with them those who have died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who've died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds to meet the Lord. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We are the temple in this age. There will be an eschatological temple that Ezekiel saw that Christ preached about. There will be a regathering, another post-exile that will come. Read the book of Revelation. But in the meantime, we've been freed from Babylon. And we've been brought to this land to build a temple, the temple of the Spirit of God, the temple of Christ. He is going to come for us. And when he does come for us, will he say, well done, good and faithful servant, when we meet him in the clouds in rapture, when we see him thereafter unfolding his plan in the day of the Lord to restore his people and fulfill all the things that we are studying. We come now to the communion table. Paul said when he gave communion to the, the to the church, he said, communion isn't just looking back on what Christ has done, but communion proclaims his death until he comes. And so as we have freshly heard of things in the future to come, as we have freshly been comforted by Paul's pen to the Thessalonians, 
Let us come to the table and find comfort in Him and proclaim the one who is coming again. Don't only find comfort, also find confrontation. He loves you. He's going to confront you. He wants to call out your sin. He wants to free you from it. A lot of people think, oh, those Christians, they're all shaking their fingers. at." No, we're not shaking their fingers. This is, this is freedom. He wants to free you. That young rich ruler walked away and, and forfeited his, his, his soul. Don't walk away today. Come to him. Let, let go of everything. Ezra was called to be a, a priest and a mediator. We have a greater priest in Christ who will mediate all things. We have a message in Christ to share. We have a Savior to worship. Let's pray. Let's sing. Let's come to the table. Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you that in Him we have a temple to build. Lord, like your people, in the days of Ezra, in the days of Haggai and Zechariah, we find ourselves distracted, procrastinating. We put other things before you. We convince ourselves that we're in the right place to put these things before you because often they're good things like family or work or charity or whatever. But the one thing that you have given us that no one else can do is building your temple, sanctifying your saints, making disciples, proclaiming the good news to the ends of the nation. And even in saying no one else can do it, you often, in our shame, raise up pagan powers to do things that you've called us to do. And so, Lord, as the church in North America that is uh, prone to politicization and distraction, sin, compromise, uh, Lord, I cry out on behalf of the, of the church across this nation, Lord, that you would heal us, that you would bring a genuine revival to churches across this country and churches around the world. But, Lord, may it begin here and now in our hearts. Give us the heart of Ezra for your word and your work and your will. It'll, it'll only happen by your hand. So, Lord, I plead, I beg, will your hand move here and now as we come to the table? Confront us and comfort us. Draw us in repentance and faith. In the name of Jesus, amen.